0: I don't know about you, but um, these next six months or so in our family's home is some of the most frustrating six months in my experience of the entire year. I I know lots of people are looking forward to the next number of months. The days are going to get longer and the sun is going to shine brighter and the air is going to be warmer and it's going to be summer. and And I love all that stuff too. But there are other implications in our family to the coming months. You see, the coming months for us are the what-do-you-want season in our family's life. My birthday's in May. Chris's birthday's in June. Arlie's birthday's in July. Kennedy's birthday's in August. And Trevi and Briley's birthday's are in October, which means that basically for the next six months in our household, we're busy asking somebody, what do you want? What do you want for your birthday? What do you want for your birthday? And the problem is... <laughs> I don't know what they want for the birthday. I mean, the reason you have to ask, I don't know what Krista wants for her birthday, and I don't know what Arlie wants for her birthday, and the reason we keep having to ask is because we don't know what they want for their birthday, but probably the more frustrating thing for me is that I don't know what I want for my birthday. So for the next month, people are going to start asking me, what do you want for your birthday? And I, And I'm not going to have an answer because I don't know what I want. And it turns out, as we turn for the last time to the Ten Commandments, that that's actually part of the problem. And that the question, what do you want, is actually somewhat critical for being a Ten Commandments kind of person. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments in the fall uh, and then again this winter, And if you remember back to our first series in the fall, which I I know that you don't, and I don't blame you. I barely do myself. But we talked about the Ten Commandments as being not like ten rules you have to follow or else God's going to be mad. The Ten Commandments are a broad description of a life of covenant love that we live in relationship with God in response to what God has done for us, rescuing us from slavery to sin and to self and to brokenness and to pain and and to injustice, God has rescued us and and brought us to God's self and now God is inviting us to live in this covenant relationship with God where we in relationship with God put God on display for the world and it just Invites everyone else to want to live in relationship with God. And we've talked about that relationship in two parts. That the first four commandments describe our covenant relationship in terms of our love for God. That we prioritize God ahead of everything else in our life. That we submit to God's purposes for us rather than trying to force God to submit to our own purposes. For ourselves. We bear God's name well. We give God a good reputation in the world, and and we commit to creating time and space to connect with God, to be renewed as people so that we can continue to love God well. And then this winter, we talked about how the last six commandments are about how our love for God then spills out into our love for everybody else. We're the kind of people who honor our parent or parents. We're the kind of people who are agents of life rather than agents of pain and destruction. We are agents or we are those who are committed to faithfulness in our relationships, especially in our marriages. We're people who are committed um, to generosity rather than grasping. And we're the kind of people who speak loving truth in a way that makes everyone who hears our words better as human beings. We've talked about loving God and loving each other and the world. We've talked about love in our actions and love in our words. And that brings us to the 10th and final commandment where it's no longer about what happens externally as much as it is about what happens inside. In Exodus twenty seventeen, it says, do not desire and try to take your neighbor's house do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Just kind of, just whatever else you would want to add to the list, don't take it from your neighbor. <laughs> Actually, don't even desire to take it from your neighbor. Often this commandment is translated, do not covet. But coveting is a word that only has negative implications. The word desire in English, like the Hebrew word behind it, um, can either be a positive or a negative thing. Po- desire in our lives can be healthy and appropriate and life-giving. We can desire all sorts of God's goods, gifts, to be married and be a family, to have children, to um, you know, have a make a good living, to live. Free from concern about poverty, to um, be surrounded by good friends, to just enjoy our lives. We can desire all of those things, and those are good and healthy things to desire. The word in Hebrew, desire, is the word that Psalm 19 uses. Uh, to describe our desire for God. It says, I have sought you with all my heart. I've desired you with all my heart. So don't let me stray from any of your commandments. Let me be a commandment person who's living out of a desire for you. But desire can also become a negative, unhealthy, inappropriate, and sinful thing in our life. When the desire begins to build and we feel compelled to seize or to grasp after something that's not rightly ours. When the desire grows out of proportion, when it grows out of control, when it becomes a dominating force in our life, when we can no longer manage our desire and the pressure that begins to build inside of it is like the the pressure of Something carbonated that's been shaken vigorously, and now I will cannot take a drink of my water for the rest of the sermon. But when that desire grows out of control, when the desire for something Becomes this compelling force and spills out of our inner world into our outer world, that's when it becomes problematic. Because it turns out that that desire for whatever it is that we crave and covet, that desire building in us actually positions us more than halfway (laughs) to committing the other nine, breaking the other nine of the commandments. Desire, out of control, takes you more than halfway to sin. In James chapter 4, Jesus' brother writes, What is the source of conflict among you? What is the source of all your disputes? Why are your relationships a mess and broken and whatever? Don't they come from your cravings that are at war within your lives? You long for something you don't have, so you commit murder. You become an agent of death in the world. You're jealous for something you can't get, so you struggle and you fight. See, it turns out that that desire cultivated and nurtured in us for something unhealthy or inappropriate or to an inordinate degree actually becomes the compelling force of sin and brokenness and broken relationships in our lives. And and by the way, the desire isn't sinful only if it results in another sin, right? Like the, the commandment isn't just Don't desire, it's translated don't desire and try and take, right? It's a desire that compels us to act outwardly, but it's not only sinful if our outward actions are sinful or wrong or illegal or whatever. This desire can be unhealthy and inappropriate and sinful even if the way that we act on it isn't sinful, If we say, I desire this thing so much that I'm going to go and earn a ton of money and, and just throw all my money at getting to experience this thing that I desire, it might not be a sin to earn a lot of money, but it's the fact that the desire now controls your life. It becomes the compelling, motivating force in your life that is the sin. Oh, I'm, I'm going to pressure somebody to give it to me, or I'm going to use what legal recourse I have in order to grab something that isn't mine at this moment. Or I'm going to take advantage of a downturn in somebody else's circumstances, whether poverty or divorce or something. I'm going to seize the opportunity of someone else's misfortune to grab something for myself that I want. It might not be illegal. It might not be sinful or even wrong, but... The moment that desire becomes a compelling force, we violated the 10th commandment because our lives are driven by an unhealthy, sinful desire. And that desire, by the way, can be for anything. The, the first word in the list in the command is don't desire your neighbor's house. But that doesn't mean like the physical structure that the family eats and sleeps in at night. That's, it's not just talking about the building the house represented everything that comes along uh, with the life that gets lived in the house. It includes the family. It includes the livelihood that is generated in that house because most ancient businesses were run out of the home, although post-pandemic, most of us are doing work in our, out of our homes. It's the not just the livelihood generated, but the life that is experienced within the house. It is like... The desire to have your neighbor's life. The desire to to be your neighbor. It's not just keeping up with the Joneses. It's craving the Joneses' life for yourself. To be them. It's not an accident that if you go back and read the commandment, there are seven items on the list that we are not to desire or covet, Um, not because we only covet one of seven things, but because seven is often in the Bible a symbolic number of completeness. It just refers to anything and everything that our hearts can desire in unhealthy, inappropriate, sinful ways. This is the 10th commandment. Do not allow, cultivate, nurture, this unhealthy, sinful desire in your inner world to the point where it begins to take control of your life. See, it turns out that to be a 10th commandment kind of person To be someone who lives in covenant relationship of of love for God and for people as far as the 10th commandment is concerned is to stop and ask the question, what is it that I really want? It's the question that Jesus asked some of his earliest disciples in John chapter 1. It says, the next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following. And he asked, what do you want? What do you want? See, that is the core question of what it means to follow Jesus? What is it that you genuinely want in the depth of your soul when all the clutter is cleared away? What is it more than anything else that you want, that you really think is going to give you life? What do you want? See, following Jesus is not about being religious, showing up at church services or reading your Bible or praying, and it's not the heart of it. Showing, being, Following Jesus is not about, you know, your beliefs and being sure of your beliefs and just developing this deep theology so you can win an argument with anybody who disagrees with you. It's not what it's about. It's not even about your ethics or your morals, about being a good person, about following these ten rules. That's not what it's about. All those things are good things, and they are all in some way a part of following Jesus. But what following Jesus is at its very heart is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 6. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they will be fed until they are full. At the core of following Jesus is being a person that hungers and thirsts to love rightly, to love God rightly, to love myself rightly, to love each other rightly, to love everyone else Rightly. Following Jesus is a matter of hungering and thirsting after loving our society and our culture rightly. Loving our, the forgotten and the ignored rightly. Loving our enemies and even the planet rightly. And, and when your heart is consumed by this desire to love rightly, Jesus says that is when you will be filled and your life will be full. That's what following Jesus is about, is a desire to love that dominates our hearts and drives everything that we do, starting with our love for God. It's interesting to me, it feels like the 10 commandments kind of form a closed circle. They begin, the first commandment is don't love anything more than you love God, period. Don't love anything more than you love God. And truth be told, if you can follow that commandment, then you will never break the 10th commandment, which is don't let your desire or craving for something that isn't God get out of control, right? Like if you if you follow the first, you won't break the 10th. And if you don't break the tenth, it's because you're following the first. That it's actually in channeling our desire not to any of these myriad things that we can crave in unhealthy and sinful ways, but channeling that desire towards first loving God in a way that spills out into our love for everything else. St. Augustine said it 400 years ago. He said, you have made us for yourself, God, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. When our heart finds rest in loving God, when all of our desire is channeled towards that end, then everything in our life becomes rest. That's that's the life, the interior, the inner version of the covenant life In relationship with God that the Ten Commandments call us to. A life in which our inner desire, when what we want more than anything else, is to love rightly, starting with God. We get that right, and everything else just kind of flows. Uh, James K.A. Smith says, that it won't be on the screen, but it says, We are what we want. Our wants and our longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow our wants reverberate from our heart the epicenter of the human person and so it says in Proverbs chapter 4:23 above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it protect your heart nurture cultivate the desire to love rightly in your heart, and everything else flows from that. So how do we do that? How do we become people who cultivate the desire to love rightly? How do we take the compass needle in our inner world and point it towards desiring to love God above all else and to love everyone else? Because that's not our nature, but it can become our second nature. People say that whenever you acquire a new skill, uh, you go through four stages. There is unconscious incompetence. In other words, there's this stage where you don't even know how bad you are, like playing the piano. You don't even realize how bad you would be at playing the piano. And then there's this second stage, in that example, when you sit down at the piano and start to play. When you and everybody else arrives at conscious incompetence. I now know how bad I am at the piano. But if I really work at it, I can get to the third stage, which is conscious competence. If I think about it, focus, and try, and discipline, am disciplined, I can actually begin to play the piano. And then if I practice, 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 I can achieve conscious, unconscious competence. It's a second nature. My fingers just know what to do. How do we achieve um, unconscious competence at loving well. Well, we, I think, start by imitating someone. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We learn in the beginning by watching how others do it, and then we do it. By finding somebody who loves well, and then saying, I'm going to learn to do what they do. Getting close to them, and seeing how they love God, and seeing how they love people, and then just... Doing what they do. I, I watched a documentary about Tiger Woods um, this last week because Tiger Woods has been inducted into the Golf Hall of Fame as the best golfer who's ever walked on the planet. When he was 10 months old, his dad was strapping him into a high chair in the garage to watch his dad swing a golf club. And before Tiger was one years old, he was imitating his dad's golf swing. It's where it begins so often. But Tiger Woods doesn't become Tiger Woods unless, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. Unless he practiced, practiced, practiced. In Colossians chapter 3, it says, Take off the old human nature with its practices and put on the new nature with its practices. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It goes on to talk about tolerance and forgiveness and says, Those are all expressions of love. We learn to practice. Being a new kind of person, which is why at Southridge, we are so committed to talking about faith as something we practice. We reorient the compass needle of our heart to loving God by the way that we practice worship, both Individually And as a community on Sundays and every day throughout the week, we create the space in our lives for a wholehearted, full-bodied participation in creating the space to encounter the God who has rescued us from slavery to sin and self and brokenness and pain and injustice. And we practice worship, the giving and receiving of the love of God. We're committed to practicing loving each other, engaging in genuine community, offering each other my authenticity and vulnerability so that you see me good, bad, and ugly, and receiving each other, embracing and accepting each other warts and all as we receive each other's vulnerability and authenticity. We practice genuine community and life group and in other environments, we practice loving the world. Humble self sacrifice. We practice living in solidarity and friendship with the forgotten and the ignored. We practice putting their interests and needs ahead of our own. We practice using our privilege to bring justice to the lives of others. We practice in our anchor causes and in other ways living lives of humble service. That old joke how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Well, practice, practice, practice. How do you retrain your heart to desire, to hunger and thirst above all else, to love God and to love yourself and to love each other and to love everyone else and the forgotten and ignored and even our enemies and the planet? How do we train our hearts to desire the God things, which are the good things? Practice, practice, practice. Let's pray. God, I, at the end of this series, want to thank you for the ways that you've rescued us. You rescued us from our sin and our selfishness, from our self and our brokenness, from pain and injustice. You are rescuing us and you want to continue to rescue us so that we can, in ever-deepening ways, learn to live in loving covenant relationship with you in a way that spills out into our loving covenant relationship with each other. And we live and put you on display in the world so that others will be drawn in to love you as well. And at the very heart of that life, is a heart that desires nothing else or more, that hungers and thirsts after nothing else, but to learn to love rightly. By your Holy Spirit, would you empower us to work out our salvation as you are at work in us, teaching us to desire nothing more than to love. Thank you that that's who Jesus is And that the Jesus who lives in us by your spirit will make us into that as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.